Welcome to Whistleblower Network News. I am your host, Jane Turner, FBI whistleblower and advocate. It is our honor to share with you these experiences of real-life heroes and people of integrity. Hello, this is Jane Turner with Whistleblower of the Week, and I am an FBI whistleblower, whistleblower advocate, and host of this program. I'm really excited today to have Jeremiah Johnson on. I've been chasing after Jeremiah, Dr. Johnson, for a long time, and I finally have him on this program. He's a conscientious law enforcement leader. Uh, Dr. Johnson has served in a variety of sworn and civilian roles across the criminal justice system, including policing, sentencing, and corrections. He's got a decade of teaching experience, delivering courses at the undergraduate or graduate level in criminology, criminal justice, police administration, leadership, public administration, and just a plethora of different things in the justice administration. He holds a BA in sociology from Geneva College and a master's in justice administration from Western Connecticut State University and a master's in criminal justice from John Jay College, my old alma mater. I didn't and, know that. Uh, yes, I went to John yeah. Jay. And a PhD, this is why we're calling him Dr. Johnson, in criminal justice from the City University of New York Graduate Center. His dissertation research focused on the role of relational networks in diffusing law enforcement innovations. Now, Dr. Johnson, we're going to get to what that is in plain English a little later <laughs> into this. But um, I, I really am interested in two things. So sure. we'll have two things going uh, uh, in this interview. And welcome. The first thing is your whistleblowing. I know you have not had the freedom to discuss it prior. This is why uh, we have waited so long to get you on this program. Could you speak to that, please? And then we're going to talk about the organization, a nonprofit that you founded, which is just exceptional. But let's start with your whistleblowing, first of all. Tell us how this came about and where you were at. Certainly, Jane. Well, thank you for having me on this uh, mm -hmm. podcast of yours. I think it's a wonderful thing. And uh, we've worked a long time together behind the scenes yes. to highlight law enforcement whistleblowers. So I really thank you for your partnership in doing that. One of the things I really wanted to do was to call attention uh, to the, the courage of whistleblowers coming from uh, that field of law enforcement, which, uh, which we share. So I had a 20 plus year career in municipal policing. Uh, I was hired by a municipality in uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut back in 2002. Uh, and I was able to retire uh, just last year. I think I'm coming up on the anniversary, February 1st of uh, my retirement. Congratulations. Uh, and, oh, thank you. And uh, just in that time, I've become more what I call uh, public facing regarding my role with uh, Lamplighter Project and just speaking about my own experiences in policing when it comes to uh, calling out wrongdoing, whether that be criminal misconduct, 
or you know other other wrongs or harms uh, in the in the system, and trying to support other people uh, who have come forward. The, the the term whistleblower is one that I have an uncomfortable relationship with, at least for uh, me personally, because uh, in my own experiences, I never went outside of my own organization. Uh, perhaps in hindsight, I should have, but I also realized that that likely would have resulted in the end of my law enforcement career. Uh, mm-hmm. I did what I was supposed to as far as following the chain of command, uh, or in sometimes jumping the chain of command in order to report uh, criminal misconduct on a couple of occasions uh, that had, had that I had come across in the course of of my duties, and uh, unfortunately, it, it happened across across my career at a, at a couple different levels and emerged in in different ways uh i went into the field of policing somewhat naively thinking that uh, i would not have to engage with some of these ethical dilemmas right because i was joining the good guys right i had mm-hmm. i had studied I had studied uh, philosophy and uh, some other classes uh, in in college, and I hadn't deeply considered um, that possibility. Um, I, I think I think perhaps I I should have thought <laughs> thought of it more uh, deeply, but I, I think I saw things in a very black and white type of manner, you know, good guys, bad guys. And I was joining, I was joining the good guys, uh, law enforcement. I, I describe it as a very, uh, seductive field. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get to do a lot of the, uh, exciting things. Uh, they often say in this part of the country, you have a, uh, front front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Mm-hmm. And I think it was very uh, a- appealing to me. I didn't come from a law enforcement family. Uh, I didn't know much about the field other than maybe what I'd seen on TV, right? And so when I got into uh, this agency, I was drawn very quickly to those officers who I felt um, were were being really proactive and doing, you know, the. Uh, you know the exciting, the exciting things, and so I, I would say I was early on very much headed down uh, that that road of um, quickly conforming to that uh, that that type of mentality and and mindset in policing, and very much wanting to be part of that uh, part of that brotherhood. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, the one of the first times in which I encountered uh, some some misconduct in the course of my duties. Um, I was actually not forthcoming, um, you know, and I, I think that's that's important to you know recognize and acknowledge. Uh, I was a rookie police officer working a what we call a side job, an off duty job, and there was an officer uh, who had been out what we called injured on duty. Uh, and was unable to work, and I was uh, working essentially parking and security for a private event, and I saw him working in plain clothes at the same at that same event. Uh, and the officer basically said, "You know, if I hear anything about this, I'll know who it came from," Uh-oh. and basically advised me to keep my mouth shut. 
uh, which, which regrettably I, I did. Um, you know, I, I do think I was feeling empathetic for his family. Maybe this guy needs money, yes. right? But he was also essentially defrauding <clears throat> the, um, the, the town. Yes. I, I did happen to confide in another officer who, um, did the right thing. I, I don't know what his intentions were. Uh, I think he had had some sort of beef with this particular officer, um, and went right to the, the supervisor. So probably did the, the right things for the wrong reasons. Uh, once that information had come to light, I actively participated in the investigation and wrote a statement. And since I was the essentially the lone witness uh, for that, uh, the officer who had had some disciplinary problems in their past was ultimately forced to resign. And that uh, started a, a, a slow cascade of events in his life um, that ultimately led to uh, him committing suicide a number of years later. Mm. And uh, that that tragedy, I think, uh, just brought back the the specter of you know, my own involvement in um, in that in that case, and that being what forced him out of uh, law enforcement. Um, so now, while nobody confronted me uh, directly to my face on it, I, I think there were a lot of uh, people who were still around who had remembered what had transpired, and uh, it wasn't so much that. Uh, his own conduct had ended his career, but um, you know that I was the one that had brought those turn of events around. Um, even though initially, as I had said before, I had I had kept my mouth shut, uh, as he had warned me to do. So I think that really taught me that the the whole um, brotherhood in in law enforcement yes. really is a lie, and I, I've seen that wow. play out. Countless times uh, across the country with law enforcement whistleblowers who do speak up or out, even if it's just um, really to <clears throat> to save themselves, so to speak, um, you know, they're expected to um, cover for the, the misconduct of, of others. So uh, going forward in my career, I think I was um, more... Uh, ready to come out and confront uh, wrongdoing, whether it was as a, you know, as a supervisor um, or even holding other, other supervisors accountable, which uh, happened several years later in, in my career. Uh, I think there was always the, the, the suspicion that I was out to get other cops, right. Uh, that I liked uh, this part of the country, we call it getting jammed up. Yes. Uh, and I think there was a suspicion that I, I liked to jam up other people uh, just because it happened a number of times in, in my career. Obviously, uh, as a supervisor, you have a responsibility to hold other officers accountable for their jobs. Yes. Uh, but I, I never really went out looking for it, right? Trying to catch uh, somebody. And for whatever reason, these things just happen to fall into my lap sometimes, uh, or yes. I just happen to be working a shift where there was off-duty uh, misconduct. And it actually caused me to, many years later, wonder whether I was just unlucky, right? If it was just bad luck that these things had happened to me, or was it that these things were happening to other officers and other supervisors that they were witnessing and they were just covering them up. Uh, and I had, I had spent 
some time going through, you know, counseling and, and things like that in, in response to all that I experienced and um, received some, some affirmation that, yes, in fact, there had been other misconduct that uh, had transpired in the organization that was was covered up by other officers. And I just had no knowledge of it because people didn't openly share that with me. I was very much on the outside when it came to that type of, of information. Um, right. So, so the, the next major incident that happened in my career, I was a brand new supervisor. We had, had done uh, DWI checkpoints mm-hmm. uh, prior to this point in my career. There was, you know, nobody that uh, we had always done just roaming patrols, but we got some, I don't know if it was grant money, but we started doing checkpoints and, uh, I really enjoyed DWI enforcement. I, I believed in it and, uh, was, I felt was quite good at it. And so I participated in these checkpoints and one night, a young woman drove through the checkpoint, a young attorney and, um, Asked her the the standard questions, pulled her out for a field sobriety test, and which she failed. Uh, brought her back for processing and booking. We did our own booking and processed the arrest. I used the uh, device used to collect uh, blood alcohol samples. We called it an intoxilizer at that point in time, and you know gave her a court date, and she was bonded out. Now I think in part because she was an attorney and this could jeopardize her ability to practice law. She hired a, uh, an attorney that specialized in DWI prosecution. And I was uh, summoned to, to a hearing to testify. And I delivered that testimony. And I remember that the, um, the, the defense counsel had asked me to produce my, my certification to operate the machine. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't been listed on the, uh, the list of items to produce. Um, so the attorney basically said, you know, if you can produce this, this document, you don't have to reappear. Uh Um, and they had set a date, uh, and you know, a lot of these, a lot of these hearings are at really inconvenient times for a lot of, for a lot of officers, depending on shift work, right. And they might be at locations, which are uh, quite distant from your jurisdiction or where you live. So, uh, I was actually being, uh, somewhat lazy, uh, and not wanting to go back to the hearing. And I said, oh, well, I'll just get the, uh, the, the document. The training sergeant at the time uh, was actually on vacation, so I wasn't able to obtain the record. But um, these were all held with our state police uh, because they managed the, uh, the, the testing devices were actually theirs. They, they belonged to the state police. So I said, oh, I'll just reach out to the state police. Yes. So I got, I got the, um, I, I made a phone call and they said that they would fax my record over to me. So I thought, great. And uh, what came over the fax was not just my record, uh, but the record of the records of the entire department. Right. Um, and I looked at, Uh-oh. I looked at, I looked at the, uh, the, the training record. The only time I had received training on this device was in the Academy. So I thought it was just going to be my Academy date from six years prior. But in fact, it was one from uh, quite recently. So I, I speculated, well, perhaps uh, I had made a DWI arrest and I on that given day, and I had demonstrated proficiency with the machine just by using it. I, I checked my own personal records, hadn't made an arrest that day. I went down to the record of another officer 
uh, and looked at his calendar and found out that that officer was not scheduled to work that day. I, I believe he might have been on vacation. Oh. And that was just a, um, I, I still remember the, the feeling, um, the, the sinking feeling that I had because I realized that I had stumbled across yes. um, something very serious. Yes. Uh, and in fact, the state had a law that officers, in fact, have to receive training on the machine on an annual basis. Um, so I, I took that information up to, um, I think it was the, the number two in the department at the time. And basically said, you know, this just sort of blew up in, in my lap here. Yes. You know, I'll, I'll do whatever you want, but the one thing I'm not willing to do is lie. Right. Um, they opened up an investigation. Um, I was, um, I did go, I did go back to that hearing and I did in fact testify that I, I was not certified to operate the machine. Um, and actually, the the hearing officer, I, I still have the record. Um, you know, actually commended me yes. for for being for being truthful. Um, and that I, I think was probably one of the the proudest moments of of my career because I had done a difficult thing. Yes. Um, you know that that officer ultimately uh, that that other supervisor was. Uh, forced forced to resign uh actually well for a forced retirement but it never it never came to public light i was told that it was brought to the chief state's attorney um again i was a, a new supervisor still very much trusting in the agency to do the right thing yes um you know if i could go back i um you know probably would have taken it, it further because i i did think it was a great um injustice it, it, jeopardized a lot of cases not just this one um you know i believe very firmly that we have to play by the play by the rules and doctor sure. you were retaliated against weren't you i so when the training sergeant was forced to retire there was a vacancy for that i was a young sergeant um, i was in a graduate program at the time or or i had just graduated with my first master's degree um i i put in for that spot and I was told directly that I could not be given that position um, because it would look bad because I had gotten the prior sergeant fired. Um, yes, that was told in my face that they that they couldn't do it. So, in that sense, um, I believe that was a, a direct result of my role in reporting uh, misconduct. So, one of the one of the things that I would say is. I never went outside of the agency. There, there were times that I absolutely felt fearful of, of my peers. Um, you know, while some of these investigations were going on and my name was mixed up in it, um, I remember circling my, my block, making sure that this officer, this uh, fellow supervisor wasn't uh, out to get me, so to speak. So there were definitely times in which I was fearful. Uh, but I would say that my experience is pale in comparison to those officers who have gone outside the agency. Um, when, when you publicly embarrass an, an agency in that way, uh, the full brunt of retaliation is, is brought to bear, um, yes. both, both in formal and informal ways. So I, I never speak about my own experiences, um, 
that that much because I I feel as though I only got a taste. Yes. Of of retaliation. Um, you know, a lot of whispers and conjecture, and um, it, it definitely hurt my upward mobility. But um, in no way comes close to the retaliation experienced by uh, many of the whistleblowers that I've come to know in doing this work. And so I felt uh, very motivated to try and elevate these stories of other law enforcement uh, whistleblowers and and try to bring them bring them to public light. Um, right. Is I, that I made, what is sure. that what uh, Dr. Johnson, you know, kind of propelled you toward establishing the Lamplighter Project? And I know that's a favorite a favorite term of uh, Francesco Serpico. So, did have you ever met with him, or is that where you came up with this concept because you had read something about him? So, as I said before, I, I don't always consider myself a, a whistleblower. The term didn't always sit well with me. It wasn't until I read a speech uh, by Frank Serpico where he mentioned the term uh, lamplighter and actually referenced that that is uh, his preferred term over whistleblower. Um, he, he gives a couple um, uh, a couple of stories about you know that that term lamplighter, whether that be uh, Paul Revere lighting the lamps to, mm-hmm. to warn people or um, back from his old days and patrolling uh, tenements and, and housing projects when you turn on the lights, all the cockroaches scurry away. Yes. Um, so when I read about that, the act of lamp lighting, that resonated with me and made me feel for the first time that what I had done inside my agency uh, had value and was <clears throat> was important, um, a, a, an important part of fulfilling my oath as a, as a police officer and maintaining the integrity of the institution of policing. Um, and so, yes, the, the term Lamplighter Project directly comes from the inspiration of, of Frank Serpico, not only his uh, acts of reporting corruption in the New York City Police Department in the late 1960s and early 70s, um, but also just his um, continued activism. So, um, you know, he is, he is somebody that I uh, deeply admire and respect as many uh, whistleblowers do. I think they, they draw on his experience as a source of, of strength, um, as, as I did in, in my career. I, I think there's a, there's a feeling of um, a, a sort of a, a kinship, I think, uh, with Frank Serpico, whether they've met him or, or not. Um, you know, I've never met him in in person but i've had the fortune of having some um, long conversations with him on the, on the telephone so he's uh, very much a, a mentor to me and continues to inspire a lot of our our work uh, with lamplighter yes. project yes i've and had so, him on this program he he is yes an interesting character and uh well beloved by many people so that's how you came up with the lamplighter project and uh, yeah. I know that you have some impressive people on your board. Austin Handel, I know very well, and it's a great guy. Sarah, Peace Corps volunteer, uh, whistleblower, 
incredible person. So you just have put together an incredible organization. Well, thank you. I'm I'm very blessed uh, for them to have dedicated their their time and talents to moving forward our our collective uh, mission. The Lamplighter Project really just started out as an anonymous Twitter account. Um, as I mentioned oh. before, I was seeking to elevate the stories of law enforcement whistleblowers. Um, so that started, I think, in November of 2016. And it wasn't until yes. probably 2020 where uh, a, a larger purpose started to started to crystallize. Um, and that's when I uh, drafted a, a mission statement and started working towards uh, formalizing a, a board. Um, so the the mission of Lamplighter Project is really three pronged. We're we're trying to encourage whistleblowing activity in law enforcement. And we're trying to do that by removing barriers to reporting, preventing retaliation, and also uh, elevating ethical officers. Um, and that latter part is something I feel we've done quite successfully uh, in the creation of our annual award, which we give. Um, we we call it the uh, Moral Courage Award. Uh, law, yes. law enforcement officers, almost all of them, are, are heroic. Right, they're the ones that that run towards danger. Um, they they deal with the the criminals that uh, no one else in society wants to go after, um, and they put their lives on the line. Uh, but what is much rarer is moral courage, and yes. that's something that is almost never rewarded in in law enforcement. Um, Oftentimes, when you do exercise moral courage, you're, you're drummed out of the, the profession. So I've found very right. few examples of law enforcement officers who have been heralded by their, by their police chiefs um, for taking an ethical stand. I, I can count them on uh, one hand uh, yes. as far as what I've, what I've come across. So uh, this is very important, and this is something that you know, I plan on doing until police departments uh, recognize their their heroes of integrity, um, and my goal for that award is is to one day receive a nomination from a police executive uh, that wants to recognize their officer for their their moral courage. Um, so we've given the award on three occasions, and um, we'll we'll soon start accepting uh, nominations. Actually, our nomination form is available on our website. Um, you know, if if people know of a an ethical law enforcement officer. Um, and, and we do try to highlight cases that are more recent um, just because we feel that that's a, uh, can be an important way to get a greater media attention on yes. that, that whistleblower and also, you know, um, help, help to buoy them uh, personally. You know, the, the, the fight of, a whistleblower is, is often long and drawn out and it's easily, it's easy to get uh, discouraged. You know, so I yes. think our award is something that they can look to and as a, um, you know, sign of sign of hope and an acknowledgement. Um, whistleblowers are not thanked. Often when I, when I speak to law enforcement whistleblowers, the first thing that I'll do is I'll thank them um, for doing the right thing because they never hear that in their own no. agency. I, no. I never heard that. Um, I even in a, in a sit down with my departments, uh, number one and two brought that very fact up. Um, and there was just 
deafening silence in the room. You know, they didn't have anything to say. They, they had an opportunity. Um, you know, one, the counter perspective is I just did what I was supposed to do. Right. Do you, right. should you, should you really be congratulated for that? But, um, I think many other law enforcement officers in that same situation would not do the difficult and right thing. That's right. Um, so it is, it is something that we need to to recognize and and reward in order to encourage that behavior in our in our agencies. I I totally agree with you. When somebody has the identity of whether it's like Sarah Thompson, you know, with the Peace Corps or Austin Handle, both people I've had on this program who have displayed such moral courage and these very important identities are stolen from them, taken away, and they're punished. It's an excruciating thing. So I, I agree with you. Whistleblowers should be heralded and recognized. And, you know, this is the big thing going on in the United Kingdom right now is uh, their feeling is whistleblowers shouldn't get any remunerations per se, a reward program, they call it, because they should just be doing the right thing. Well, when the right thing causes the end of your career, oftentimes, sometimes the loss of your family and financial security, um, it's a. I think it's a bit much to ask that of whistleblowers. And I totally agree with you that whistleblowers should be rewarded. And I, I'm delighted to see that you've set something up like this, which promotes that. I, I just am delighted. Hi, we'll be right back with more of Whistleblower of the Week after a quick message from one of our whistleblower friends. Don't go anywhere. Hey, this is Austin Handel, also known as Officer Ash on social media and as the Dunwoody Whistleblower and the Vice Chair of the Lamplighter Project. Leading whistleblower attorney Stephen Cohn's latest book, Rules for Whistleblowers, A Handbook for Doing What's Right, is the ultimate guide to blowing the whistle. Rules for Whistleblowers is an easy-to-read, essential tool for anyone curious about whistleblowing. The book lays out 35 rules to help whistleblowers navigate the complex and dangerous world of whistleblowing. Subscribers to the Whistleblower News Network can also receive 35% off a copy of this indispensable resource. Visit whistleblowersblog.org slash rules for whistleblowers to learn more. Yeah, I, I recently got in touch with a whistleblower from the... Um, I, I guess he was a Molin Commission era whistleblower from from the NYPD, and he ultimately had to leave policing. But one of the interesting things was an executive uh, from a a large Fortune 500 company had actually read about him in the newspaper and set up a meeting with him and ended up uh, offering him a position uh, wow. in in his company, and he's had a quite quite a successful uh, career in corporate security um, wow, since then that's right rare. so that's it, rare. It, yes um it, it's definitely i think a lot of officers are are blacklisted yes. in the law enforcement profession i've only seen people be able to you know reinvent themselves a, right. a number of a number of times oftentimes that's so right. they have to start over in a different state maybe that's go right. to corrections um and then work their way up I, I think our whistleblowers really are excellent officers who are mm -hmm. upholding the the highest ideals of the the profession many of them i've come to find um in the in the past have been decorated for for their valor um and and it's amazing 
just how quickly the agencies are to dispense with these officers uh, once they they speak out um, against against the the wrongdoing in their own yes. departments. Um, you know, I was speaking to an officer just last night um, who had been shot in the line of, of duty um, on a on a dynamic house entry, right? Um, and of course, these officers are, are rightly heralded for their their bravery. But a few years down the road, when they call out um, bad conduct, you know they're they're terminated. That's right. That's absolutely correct. We have seen uh, and interviewed on this program scores of whistleblowers that, that that is exactly what happened to them. You know, they have exemplary records, and when it when they speak truth to power, boom, they're gone. But, you know, an interesting thing, not only were you in law enforcement, but you're quite the scholar and you have kind of developed in your research and other things, kind of a police code of ethics. And you kind of based it or designed it around the Hippocratic Oath, which doctors take. And I I, I found, and I, as I read these four key elements or themes um, I, I was impressed with what you came up with. Could you discuss this a little bit? And also, uh, I know you, were, you you mentioned in one of your articles that you couldn't even bear to look what happened in uh, Minneapolis, flyover country where I'm located, <laughs> uh, when we recently had um, our police disturbance here, which reverberates to this day. So could you maybe discuss your code of ethics and what happened here in Minneapolis? Certainly. So I, I think what you're referencing is a, an article that I, um, a, an op-ed essentially that I wrote in 2020 following the murder of George Floyd. Yes. And it's actually based on a piece that I had written for a policing think tank uh, a number of years earlier. Uh, known as, uh, now it's called uh, the National Policing Institute. At the time, it was the National Police Foundation. And I had uh, volunteered my time there as a, a policing fellow for a number of years. And I had been, <clears throat> I had heard one of the professors at John Jay, um, uh, a professor by the name of David Kennedy, who had talked about the idea of a Hippocratic Oath for for law enforcement. Uh, but he hadn't really uh, fleshed that out. What would it look like? And as I began to to research about the origins of the law enforcement code of ethics, I, I realized that it had not been touched in decades, um, probably sixty plus years. Uh, it it was very much the the brainchild of a couple of very notable uh, policing practitioners and scholars from the early 20th century. One is August Vollmer uh, and his protege, O.W. Wilson. Um, and I'm, I wasn't prepared to speak on this, so it's, I'm uh, kind of going off the cuff here. I won't, sure, won't be sure if I get all the facts right, but I, I thought it was really interesting that uh, August Vollmer, he actually said that police officers have a duty um, to essentially run out the, the bad cops. At that time, there was no code of ethics. Mm -hmm. And he basically said it was incumbent on, on the good officers to get rid of the bad. Um, you know, if, if policing was going to be held as, you know, a, 
a, a respected institution. This is something that that had to had to happen. Um, and the first part of that was getting a getting a code of ethics. Now, I I think it probably served uh, it, its time well for for the era that it, in which it came forward, but it hasn't been touched since. And it's it's very much um, focused on you know the the old the the old model, right? Um, I think they talk about the you know relentless prosecution of of criminals, you know, uh, sort of hunting them down, right? The old, the old lawman uh, type of approach. But I think what's important to realize and why I, that concept of the Hippocratic Oath resonated with me is that I learned through uh, my doctoral studies, right, that even well-intentioned law enforcement interventions can have uh, harmful, harmful effects, right? Um, that often aren't considered. And so I think it's really important that we realize uh, that there's a there's a balance that needs to be um, struck, right, when it comes to policing interventions. And really, the the overall goal should be um, this, this idea of do no do no harm, right? Yes. Uh, and, and adopting a, a mindset of trying to uh, root out those those harms. Uh, so I, I think you have to look at short term consequences and, and long term consequences. And I um, I was fortunate enough because of some of the research I had done uh, to be inducted into the uh, the evidence based policing uh, Hall of Fame. And in in a piece that I wrote um, for that induction, I, I really looked back on my own career and you know wondered. You know, when I was out there, you know, was I responsible for for causing harms, right, in the lives of people that I had potentially arrested? And I, I came to the conclusion that it's it's probably a mixed bag, right? Um, that it was probably a mixture of positives and negatives, but um, we don't really know because a lot of our agencies just don't try to measure. Uh, the impacts of what they do. Uh, they just assume that it's effective and it's the best. So it's really about uh, thinking about these these law enforcement interventions uh, thoughtfully and measuring their their impact in a in a robust type of way. Um, so I, I think my graduate education did shape a lot of my uh, my opinions about policing and, and law enforcement. Uh, in but also is very grounded in being a policing practitioner, law enforcement practitioner, um, because you have researchers that are so far removed from from the field um, that either the research that they pursue has little to no value, um, or they they just don't understand how departments function, and that can lead them to to make. Uh, assumptions that will undermine whatever sort of findings they have. So I, I think it's a really unique um, place to operate, having a foot in both worlds. And, yes. and I'm glad to see other people um, in in that space, right? As police officers become um, more more educated, and uh, yes, we're, we're actually doing a little bit of. Um, 
research on um, law enforcement whistleblowers. So I've, I've partnered with an academic, a, uh, a policing scholar named uh, Natalie Todak, and uh, we're doing qualitative, we've done qualitative interviews with uh, law enforcement whistleblowers and are submitting manuscripts um, for, for conferences and, and publications because very little is known about the effects of retaliation. Um, so right. we're trying to bring bring greater uh, attention from an academic standpoint as well. Right. A scientific standpoint, which is Absolutely. long overdue, I think. But in these days of, you know, people crying out, defund the police, where one out of every three people have a gun, where law enforcement feels that they're under assault, how is there going to be a happy medium, especially with this do no harm, which I, I totally agree with you. How, how is that going to go over with the actual law enforcement themselves who feel they're under siege? So I do think that there is a bit of a, a pendulum that operates in, in society when it comes to support for law enforcement that goes uh, back and forth. And um, sometimes mm -hmm. there's a, there's a necessary correction right in in both directions i think we're seeing that now um a little bit the pendulum swinging back the other way where there's yes. maybe a little bit more support for for police um my my concern in the aftermath of of 2020 was that um the the public scrutiny of police in in some cases uh, rightly so would actually serve to inhibit whistleblowing uh, in in policing there's some researcher there's some research by a scholar um, by the name of Tom Tyler from Yale he's done a lot on uh, police legitimacy um, he partnered with another scholar from NYU named Heather Berry and they had done some some psychological research uh, and they found of course this is in a in a laboratory type of setting but essentially students who were most devoted to their university uh, were actually the ones who were most loyal when they were confronted with um, evidence of that institution's failures. So, wow. you know, they, they came to the belief that when you're highly identified with a group, when you learn about that group's injustice, um, it actually leads to uh, what they call uh, group serving behavior. So my fear uh, during that time was that the scrutiny of police would actually cause police officers to circle the wagons right. and inhibit uh, whistleblowing. I very much see um, whistleblower reform, right, as, as as police reform, right. If we need, if we want police departments to get better, we need to find ways to get those officers to speak up. Um, those officers that are living and working behind what some people call the blue wall of silence. Uh, I do want to take it back uh, just momentarily to our discussion of Frank Serpico. Yes. Um, during the Knapp Commission hearings, uh, there was a lot of attention uh, brought forth by the New York Times uh, about this uh, misconduct and, and graft that was going on in the New York City Police Department. There was a, <clears throat> I think his rank at the time was maybe Chief Inspector by the name of Sidney Cooper uh, with NYPD. And he gave a 
an analogy that is rather um, famous in in criminal justice textbooks when you talk about misconduct. He talked about the the meat eaters and the grass eaters. Have yes. you heard about the, these? James? Yes. Right. So the the meat eaters were, were the ones that were actively uh, seeking out corruption and mm-hmm. opportunities for graft. The the grass eaters were more the people that were picking up the scraps. So yes. as I understand it, uh, back in New York City, right, if you wanted to be given a patrol car to go out on a patrol rather than a, a footbeat, you essentially had to to pay off the officer that was responsible for the assignment. Now, one of the reasons you might want a car is because that way you could make your pickups, right? Right. Um, from right. from the pad from the pad right well you would you would throw the desk officer a uh, five or ten dollar bill right and you would ensure that you would have access to a vehicle which you could engage in in your meeting now uh, Sidney cooper he actually identified a third group that does not get a lot of attention um so circling high above this this prehistoric plane of meat eaters and grass eaters are what Cooper describes as the birds. Mm-hmm. And the birds are those officers who see everything that's going on, right? But they don't partake, either because they're in an assignment that doesn't allow them the opportunities for, for profiting from the job, uh, or their own moral you know, standards yes. don't allow them to participate. So the real question in my mind is, how do we get those birds to sing? Yes. And I noticed that you have birds as a motif on your uh, Lamplighter project. If you go to your site, you have them coming out of the whistle. Did this have anything to do with the meat eaters, grass eaters, and the birds? Because you have a whole flock of birds, and here's this little bird in the center all by himself. Did that come from that? No, but I'm going to say oh. that it is. Okay, because you <laughs> should say that. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's <laughs> brilliant. So what are your future plans, Dr. Johnson? What, what are your plans for the future? Where are you headed personally and with your nonprofit, the Lamplighter Project? Certainly. Um, so as I mentioned before, I, I was able to retire from uh, from policing last year around this time. <clears throat> I was fortunate enough, I think, because although my career was was stymied, I was able to develop myself outside of the department, uh, which has led to some other opportunities. I was able to move into the um, the space of, of corrections. So I'm uh, yes. working for a, a large city overseeing uh, training and, and professional development, uh, which is really re- rewarding um, and, and finding out some you know some wonderful things about uh, corrections culture, but also realizing that you know there's a there's a need for our work to potentially expand uh, to support corrections whistleblowers um, yes. because they see a lot behind um, you know the 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 pillars of stone and gates of steel that um, does not always make it out into the public light, and there's a lot of injustice that does go on uh, yes. behind behind the bars. So you know we. Although our focus is specifically on municipal and uh, county and state policing, uh, you know we are what I consider a law enforcement whistleblower organization. So, um, you know we we do engage, you know, with 
federal agents from from time to time, and and also um, some corrections folk that speak out. So you know, I would like to <clears throat> see us expand in in that direction, and I think eventually one day, even moving beyond the the borders of the United States. Uh, I know your own org- organization has been doing some work around the world, uh, policing culture, uh, just from the nature of the job, I think encourages these, these types of, um, you know, this group identity and and group behavior that tends to uh, silence wrongdoing. So, yes, you know, we've even had uh, people reach out from as far away as, you know, Australia, right. About whistleblowing behavior. Um, you know, so on the other side of the world, uh, we do, more immediately have some some present initiatives that we're working on as an organization one of the um one of the things that i found is that very few law enforcement organizations actually have whistleblowing policies in place uh, back when i was teaching for a, a private university um, I, I had a class break and i was checking my email and I, this university was emailing me a notice of their their whistleblower policy, right? And that same night, I was going out to patrol my community uh, by a department that had given me a badge and a gun, uh, but had no whistleblower policy on the books. And I found that only three large cities in the United States actually have police whistleblower policies, and all three wow. of them are under some form of a consent decree. Um, whether that be yes. a federal or, or state consent decree. So um, Seattle, Baltimore, and <clears throat> uh, Chicago were, were the three. So we've actually partnered with um, some whistleblower firms to develop a, a model whistleblower policy um, that we're hoping to launch later this year uh, in hopes that other police departments will pick that up and make that part of their policies and procedures uh, because we really do believe that this is a, a hallmark of a professional organization. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's required by law for certain types of, um, you know, banking and investment firms and corporations around the country. They have to have these in place. Um, and we believe that it's actually going to um, change organizational behavior. Uh, when that relief valve is in place, if they have the knowledge that their officers are free to speak um, up on corruption, they will actively seek to avoid making decisions uh, that are not in the best interest of their their communities. Dr. Johnson, it has just been a delight to have you on Whistleblower of the Week I am so proud of you and your organization, what you are doing, what you have done as a former law enforcement person. I I just feel that what you're doing is so important in today's world. And uh, thank you for coming aboard. I really appreciate it. I really do. But wait, you know, it's when when you do blow the whistle, uh, I think particularly in policing, your your whole um, professional and social world tends to come yes. falling down overnight, um, just because of the nature of of law enforcement work, shift work. Your your world and your social world begins to shrink rather quickly, right? Um, and so, yes, a lot of times 
cops only socialize with other cops. Um, That's right. And so we uh, that that tends to disappear those relationships, and it, it can leave people feeling alone and and uh, vulnerable and isolated. And one of the things that our organization has actually done is we've created a, a peer support group for law enforcement whistleblowers. Uh, that's on that's on Facebook. Um, so it's a it's a closed group. Uh, it's private. We vet people that that come in, but it's been a, a great source of uh, encouragement for many people to let them know that uh, they're not alone. And you know when they are in moments of of crisis, they have a brother or sister officer. It may be on the other side of the country um, that knows firsthand those those experiences of of whistleblowing. Um, as Frank Serpico says, whistleblowing's not a one-time thing, right? It's a it's a lifelong commitment. And I feel that many whistleblowers, especially those who have um, walked that difficult road and mm-hmm. emerged on the other side, um, are often stronger for it in many ways, um, but are looking to, uh, to, to give back and help other officers who may be on that, that journey. And the experience is, is the same for myself. You know, I think about that officer that's sitting alone in a patrol car on a quiet Saturday afternoon, like today, right. That's wrestling with a a moral dilemma and we want to be there for them uh, when they choose to do the right thing. Well said. Thank you for appearing on our show. And before I leave, I'd like to mention, we do have a GoFundMe for supporting whistleblowers. Uh, we ask people to donate to the National Whistle Campaign. You can go find it on GoFundMe. Look at Support Whistleblowers. Donate to the NWD campaign so we can recognize these heroes in law enforcement and in other areas. Thank you again, Dr. Johnson. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for listening. And please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. If you want to read more whistleblower stories, go to www.whistleblowersblog.org. Music by Rachel Kilgore. Editing and booking by Anissa Shake and Victoria Thompson. And a special thanks to our sponsors, Whistleblower Network News. The truth is hard to say